This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. So JP and I had a, a surprise, I guess, for our listeners. We have been trying to get this particular guest on for some time, and uh, he's got a very, very busy life. So um, when he said he could make some time, I mean, we couldn't resist, but it does dovetail with some of our previous recordings. And I'm talking about uh, Dr. Brian Wong. And and Brian has an absolutely amazing story to share with us, whether you're thinking about training or in training now or already a practicing neurosurgeon, um, because uh, the, the path he took was just so unique and in many ways, very inspiring, I think, for anybody who's who's contemplating or going through this now. So, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Wong and JP. It's an honor. And yeah, Brian, sorry that you... it takes so long for me to get here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. Brian, why don't you start out by sharing with our audience a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, how you came to be a neurosurgeon? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, my, so I, I am Korean. Um, my ethnicity is Korean, and my father uh, immigrated to uh, the states and settled in uh, Northern California when he was in his teenage years. Grew up there, and eventually made his way to Virginia, where he had a family, had me, and something happened, and he wanted to move the family uh, back to Korea. So uh, when I was five, my family moved to South Korea, and I spent about 11, 12 years there. And uh, I, I really am appreciative of my parents for doing this, looking back, but they wanted me to at least explore and enjoy better educational opportunities. So they made sacrifice and sent me and my two younger siblings uh, back to the States. Unfortunately, that was... I believe uh, late mid to late 1990s. So I think there is a huge global financial crisis going on involving South Korea um, heavily. And therefore, due to financial hardships, my parents couldn't come with us. So uh, it was just me and my two younger siblings uh, in, in Virginia, <laughs> relying on family, friends and neighbors to uh, survive. Things luckily worked out. Uh, my parents taught us uh, uh, work ethic, humility, um, just keeping our head down and working hard. Um, and, and they taught us how to fend for ourselves. So um, and we kind of made, made, made things happen um, on our own. So my parents actually never made it here. They, they just stayed in, in Korea, uh, and, and that's where they are today. And um, I uh, and my younger siblings uh, went, went to school. Um, and I was really interested in art. I spent a lot of time doing sculpture. I thought it was very calming. Uh, it allowed me to focus uh, on um, being creative and channel my emotions uh, into my work. And so uh, that's that's the path I wanted to take um, early on in high school. I ended up going to a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania called Swarthmore. Not, not a lot of people know about this place. It's very small, uh, <laughs> 300 students uh, per class, uh, but that uh, was a phenomenal place for me to explore who I am and to also think about uh, my life ahead. Met a lot of inspirational friends and mentors. And I continued to delve in, into art, uh, but I had an opportunity randomly to volunteer at a 
let's see, like a, a Fox Cancer Center, I think. Um, it was a it was a cancer institute. I started volunteering, and I love that experience uh, of listening to people's stories. Um, and of course, these are people who are stricken by cancer, a lot of them terminal. But I, I thoroughly enjoy interacting with them and and getting their take on life, uh, some of the things they're experiencing. Um, and so I really liked that interaction. I was inspired, and I, I at that moment I decided to uh, become a a doctor. But I wanted to work with my hands too. I continue to do sculpting, uh, so I was like, well. Um, if I could do both in my career, I think I'd be very happy. Uh, and so things kind of worked out. I ended up getting a job in New York as a lab technician at Cornell. And um, that my boss there, you know, highly recommended uh, Columbia uh, because they had a very strong surgery uh, program. That lab had to happen to focus on Parkinson's disease um, and looking at um ways to get the plaque out of the body uh, through medication. So I really got interested in neuro. And so ultimately, once I got to Columbia, I wanted to look at options where I could do um, all three, which is to stay in the neuro space where it's absolutely fascinating. There's so much that like we don't know. There's a lot of things happening uh, because of um, conversion of technology, artificial intelligence, um, and and uh, our increase, ever increasing understanding of neuroscience. That it was a fascinating place to be, but I also wanted to wanted to work with my hands, be creative, and also help people, uh, especially those who are struck by uh, complicated, um, challenging conditions. So I chose neurosurgery, <laughs> but I mean, of course. That, those are the things that, looking back, uh, drew me to neurosurgery. But it really was as simple as playing basketball every, every, every day with a bunch of residents uh, in this basement uh, of the dorm. And some of the guys that are really connected, or gals and guys that I connected with, happened to be neurosurgery residents at Hopkins or, or at uh, Columbia. So they're like, "Hey, come on over, you know." Um, Let's uh, show you what, what we do, and uh, you can spend time with us. Uh, let's go watch some aneurysm surgery. Let's go uh, look at some tumor surgeries. Let's get you in a research projects, and then from then on, just things took off, and and uh, I, ne I never looked back. Um, and there's a strong tie uh, between Columbia and Hopkins, and and my mentors at, at Columbia highly recommended uh, that I look at. Uh, of course, many places around the country, but. Um, specifically at Hopkins, because I had some family who moved into that area and uh, so I could stay with them uh, throughout my training. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go there and uh, get my training. And that happened to be a, a phenomenal decision because I, of course, got world-class training. I got to meet amazing mentors and uh, also uh, friends um, who are, you know, we talk every day, you know, uh, to this day about difficult cases, life, being a neurosurgeon, uh, et cetera. So uh, the, I guess the back, the, what was going on uh, behind all this is uh, I was constantly reassessing myself um, and I, I, I wanted to uh, make sure that I'm happy, that I am confident with uh, my path um, and where I'm heading is going to lead to a place where I can be um, 
helpful to the world and helpful to the patients that I'll be taking care of. One thing I realized was that if I'm not happy, if things are not settled at home, then I can't be a productive member of society. I can't uh, fully focus on on the, the patients, patient care, which obviously is the most important uh, mission as a neurosurgeon, as a physician. And something occurred to me as I was getting closer to my research here, which is PGY five and six, as I was heading into that PGY three year, looking ahead, I was of course being a good resident, studying for the written boards and uh, working hard on the service, uh, writing grants. Uh, but in the back of my mind, I was like, well, you know, there's always something that I, I wanted to do. And that happened to be uh, being an infantryman in, in, a, in, a, in the military <laughs> and, and uh, it's one of those things that I was always super fascinated about throughout my life I go back to my notebooks and textbooks that I used to use when I was in like middle school elementary school I had scribbles drawings of tanks and um, uh, different scenes from the Vietnam War and Korean War uh, infantrymen uh, stuff like that like that that that's been kind of my infatuation uh fascination uh throughout my life and of course when i was growing up in korea uh there was military culture military uh concepts and ideas ever present because uh at the time there was a lot of um uh scary moments involving north and south korea as well as the united states um and there was always these close calls there were, it wasn't uncommon for a, a spy, an armed spy to be captured, uh, a North Korean spy to be captured in South Korea, like right behind your backyard. You see these planes flying by and, and dumping pamphlets uh, uh, with uh, anti-South Korean government propaganda. So th th that was kind of like my, my daily life. And I always admired people who were in the front line fighting the good fight and protecting us. And so uh, when I got to my PGY three year, I looked at, back at my life and I realized that one, I, I, I wanted to, I want to serve and I want to serve United States of America, this amazing country that has given so much to, to me and my family. And looking back in history, who came, who sent soldiers, who did, he didn't even know where South Korea was in the 1950s to protect at least South Korea and allow my family to enjoy this freedom and the opportunity to come to the States. So I wanted to repay that personally. And also, this sounds kind of silly looking back, but um, I, I had this sort of overblown sense of justice. And I felt that looking around the world, there are a lot of like really bad people, um, people who uh, wanted to intentionally harm others at different scales. And I, I wanted to at least be part of an, an, an effort, a government sanctioned effort to counter that and to defeat that. And so that was another reason why I thought um, serving um, and not just serving, but serving uh, in support of those efforts um, was a worthwhile endeavor. And that if I don't do this before I turn 30, 33 or 34, 32 is the last uh, age after which you need a, a age waiver to uh, join the military in the U in the U.S. at least, and so um, that was kind of like the the backstep. So I wanted to pull this trigger before um, I missed this opportunity. I learned yeah, one thing. I learned from. Yeah, sir. I guess last thing I, I want to say was the last 
the one thing I learned from all my patients so far in my short career is that uh, the worst thing you can have in life is uh, regret. <laughs> and so I don't want to have any regrets. I want it to be this content at peace neurosurgeon who 100% focused on patient care. So I had to scratch that itch. Of course, that is such an incredible and inspiring background. I mean, not to be glib at all, that's almost like a, a comic book superhero origin story, uh, hearing about your childhood and the kind of upbringing you had and, and seeing the kind of fruit that that's born in, in your life and these two very different paths that you've walked. Um, I think it's really interesting to me if we could drill in that moment where you're approaching the middle of your residency, you're a physician, a healer, you've taken the Hippocratic Oath, and you're down this very long road of neurosurgical training, which is such an investment of your time and your youth. And then you make that decision to walk away from it, branch off, and you know pick up the profession of arms, as they say. Um, most of us around middle residency are thinking about, like you said, the written boards, applying for a fellowship if you want to, um, am I going to subspecialize or not, and trying to figure out, I don't know, how to do an ACDF. And, and that's just such a larger question to grapple with. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, if you can put yourself back in your mindset then, um, how you found the time to think about that and, and I guess how you found the courage, really, for lack of a better word, to commit to that decision and walk away from something so big and in which you had already invested so much of your time and really your life. <laughs> you know, looking back, um, it didn't feel like a big decision to me. And maybe that has something to do with how I process the world. Um, but, you know, to be honest with you, I was thoroughly enjoying residency. And I really, really liked every day of it. I really liked working hard. I really like advocating for our patients. I really like getting yelled at actually in the OR and, and then getting better as a result of it. And, and, and then seeing uh, the, the, the fruit of all the training and, and hours and effort that I was putting into. But uh, for me, because I was enjoying the process so much and I wasn't so focused on the end goal, which is, I mean, I guess for some people, the end goal is graduate, get a job and then move on. But um, of course, that's important too, but maybe I wasn't thinking about things too practically or financially. I thought that what, what was the most important thing for me was when I finish all of this training, uh, because it's just a continuum, things are just going to continue to move on. And, and, it, and, and the training is just part, a small part of that career. I wanted to make sure that my career is something that I'll be very proud of and happy with. And I will not have any regrets or distractions as a hundred percent focus on it. Maybe it's something that's unique to me, but I'm either zero or 100 in a lot of things I do. My, my wife gives me a very hard time. Uh, but of course I looked at other options, you know, because I want to serve as burning desire to get into uh, this, uh, to serve our country and, and uh, the, the, the goals of our, or missions of our country in a very specific way. Of course I could have, gone into reserves. Of course, I could have served as a physician. Of course, I could have figured out a way to um, be a resident and still, um, I guess, scratch the itch, so to speak. But I, I, I thought that they, just because of who I am and how I do things, 
um, and because the way I kind of look look at the world and and uh, the, my career progression, I thought that it was a well, uh, it, it was a good decision to just completely uh, close the book on neurosurgery for that time, with a plan of coming back as long as I'm mentally and physically able, and then hundred percent turn my attention to being the best soldier that I can be. And of course, I didn't go in thinking, oh, I want to do this or do that. I just went in saying, I'm going to do my very best. And wherever I end up, wherever I end up, I'll do my very best to serve, whether it be a cook or a truck driver, which I, I really could have become one of those. Uh, and then I'll come back and I'll just continue our surgery because at the end of it, I will not have regrets because I've tried. And two, uh, I, I think I will become a better human being and a, and a, and a neurosurgeon as a result. Brian, let me highlight something because I think it may be lost on our audience if they're not paying close attention. So you're a neurosurgery resident at Johns Hopkins where Harvey Cushing used to be, right? And yes. after passing the hardest stages of residency, you said you've enjoyed getting yelled at, which is the junior years. Then you, in your senior years, stepped away from residency and joined not only the military, but you went into the special forces, right? Yes. Now tell us, because first of all, doing either of those two things is like a, a really big deal. And I remember watching the movie American Sniper that Clint Eastwood directed, amazing movie with Bradley Cooper. And the part when Bradley Cooper, or, you know, who just Chris Kyle, right, is in Buds. And I think he's like, uh, was he 28 or 32 or something like that? And they kept calling him old man, old man, old man, right? I mean, tell us, give us a little glimpse because I don't think most people can appreciate what that's really like to go through neurosurgery training, 100 hours a week plus of work, then go into this in midstream. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, absolutely, Dr. Wansley. It was a big transition. Um, so you can, one can go into couple different routes once you enter the military once you raise your once your hand and, and uh, do the oath you can become an officer or you can become an enlisted member and they're just two different tracks but generally if you have education or if you have a very specialized skill set like a physician or a neurosurgeon you go the officer route uh, and you you, you command uh, a, a number of soldiers or, um, and and direct them and uh, plan missions and, and such. And then the enlisted members will execute the plan. So you, you basically you're a grunt. I wanted to become a grunt because I wanted really a hands-on experience, but I don't have a mentor to say, hey, you should do this or that. I just had a, a hunch that that's where I belong because being a resident, I mean, you're, you, you're, you're a, you know, you're a soldier, you, you get stuff done. And so I, I was in the mentality, I thought enlisted being an enlisted member was a perfect thing. So the, basically, as soon as I went to basic training, uh, I was with a bunch of high school students, or I guess high school kids, 18, 19, uh, a lot of, many of them from all over the country um, and uh, of backgrounds of people uh, who I've really never interacted with before. Uh, and people you know who have a vastly different um, goals in life and educational and uh, financial backgrounds, which was actually um, interesting. And then you, and, and basically uh, you become one of the soldiers. You, know, you don't really have a name, um, you have a roster and you're treated like everybody else. You're no special. It was very humbling. Uh, you sleep with 30 to 40 other soldiers. Um, you uh, basically are told what to do. So going from a 
fully functioning, freedom-enjoying civilian, uh, all the way to overnight, I was basically asking for permission to go urinate <laughs> to drill sergeant. Uh, and then on, on our time off, we're not like hanging out and um, reading books or going to cafe. Uh, we go and mow the lawn, pick up trash, build roads, um, and uh, lay shingles on on and a building stuff like that. So um, that that's pretty much the life for the first four to six months once they entered the military, and it was super humbling. Um, and also, it kind of forced me to look at the bigger picture. Yeah, like I may be a resident, I may be a physician, I have this special skill set, I may have it, but but and I, I had a privileged background to have all those opportunities. Uh, but a lot of the people, you know, there who were there. Um, had ne- never had those opportunities. But one thing we shared was that we, you know, that we're all Americans. And I guess number two, we were there to fight for our country. So from, from then on, things got really interesting because I did not join to become a special forces Green Beret soldier. I just joined to um, become a soldier. And then my fate was going to be determined by my aptitude testing and then also um, whatever the needs of the Army was at the time. One thing that I did negotiate for when I went in was to at least try for the Rangers. And Rangers um, are the premier elite infantry force of the Army. They're the equivalent of the Navy SEALs, and they work, uh, they're part of the Special Operations Command. Um, and so I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, at least I, I get to do some, some of the cool stuff, kicking down doors, taking names, that kind of stuff. So let me, let me at least get, get you know, give that a shot. But during basic training, I got very lucky because one of the drill sergeants that I work with happened to be a Green Beret, an active Green Beret. And he somehow figured out my background. And of course, I look a lot older than everybody else. (laughs) And so he figured out that I may be best suited uh, for a different job, which is a special forces uh, soldier. So I didn't know this difference, but uh, the Navy SEALs, uh, the Marine Special Ops, the MARSOC, um, and the Rangers, a lot of those commands, especially at entry level, are filled up with um, younger soldiers, 18 to 20, 25. Um, and, you know, that there, there are certain expectations and certain mindset um, that, that are expected with, with the soldiers. And that serves uh, their mission, which is to go kill, capture, destroy. But the Green Berets uh, have a very different mission set, and it's very complex. It's we do kill, capture, destroy, uh, but we also do harsen mines. We also do um, interrogation. We also do intelligence gathering, counterintelligence. Uh, we also go in and um, create insurrections, for instance. So uh, those things require people with uh, maturity, good decision making. Um, and, uh, res- and strong sense of responsibility um, and loyalty, because a lot of times those kinds of missions, that's a huge platoon uh, or a squad can't go in, usually have to go in in a small team. And uh, one example of that is 12 Strong, which is a movie that came out recently. And that is an example of uh, a, a insurgency creating mission. You go in a small team, you... Um, build a very strong relationship based on trust 
with the local uh, indigenous forces, and then you raise an army to fight a dictatorial uh, government, for instance. And so you can't have young people. You generally need older people who can be trusted with millions of dollars and top secret information, uh, who's going to be inserted in a denied area where we can't have air support uh, or satellite support uh, for months, sometimes years at a time. And so those are the people uh, that they're looking for. And so I guess this drill sergeant thought that um, I could be a good fit for the command. So he said, he pulled me aside one day and he's like, hey, what do you think? And um, we, it's the army did pretty much something that they never do, which is to revise a recruits contract. They revised my contract to not go to the ranger selection, but to try for the uh, special forces uh, qualification course. So from then on, um, I went to airborne school in Georgia. I was initially in North Carolina, Fort Bragg, Fort Loyalty, I get, uh, uh, Liberty, uh, as it's called now, as of, uh, I guess, next last month. And then from there, I went to Georgia to get my airborne qualification and then was sent right back to uh, Fort Liberty to try for the special forces, which <laughs> I don't want to think about it, uh, but it was a... Uh, yeah, it, it, it was tough. It was probably the toughest thing I ever had to endure. Um, and it broke me down into, um, it broke, it, it basically um, forced me to look at my soul <laughs> throughout the process and really tested my, you know, my, my reserve and my resolution and, and it forced me to, you know, basically ask myself, is this something that I really want to do? Um, and Every day I was asking myself, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? I want to quit. This is painful. This is difficult. Um, but because of all the help I got and uh, because I had no other choice, you know, if I fail, I become a truck driver or a cook. Nothing wrong with that, but I want to do more. And so I didn't quit. And then I ended up getting through selection. Um, okay. <laughs> In one piece. Uh I can stop there because from then on, you know, the, the qualification course uh, is a pretty long course. It's the longest um, uh, course uh, for special operations forces. It uh, lasts about almost a year and a half to two years, especially for a medic. And so there's obviously a lot of ups and downs I have to go through until I've made it uh, through the other end. Well, I'm curious because we talk so much about um, neurosurgical residency and training on this show. and recently with uh, a lot of content we've done about physicians or just special operators in the in the military we've talked about the similarities between the training process and i wonder because you you mentioned several times whether in your basic training or then in your special forces training the stark difference between you and the other recruits and trainees though obviously you're all there for a single purpose and so you're united as a unit but also united by the reason that you're there and in neurosurgery residency, we have people from all over the country, sometimes all over the world, with uh, all over the world with different backgrounds. But we've all made a series of decisions uh, the same way to wind up in a residency together, and and maybe the match sorted us by personality and and complementary mindsets and things like that. But in this setting, when you're in boot camp, for example, with guys who are maybe ten years younger than you, and you know aren't physicians, haven't been to any kind of graduate school. If you get enough guys in one room in general, there's going to be joking, there's going to be ribbing, and, and there's going to be poking fun. And I imagine in that setting there is as well. So did you have any nicknames or what was the culture like in training when 
here's, you know, there's a bunch of guys straight out of high school. And then, oh, there's a 30 year old brain surgeon who's in our platoon. Like, what was that experience like? It was actually, um, there's, there's pros and cons in the military. You don't want to stand out. Standing out is generally not a good thing, especially if you're in a, um, what we call it in, in a training environment. Uh, but the attention I got was actually overall positive. So of course there are people who, um, gave me a hard time just because my name came up a lot or, um, I drew extra attention. And sometimes it can be distracting for people who are in leadership. Uh, but, but I had, again, um, drill sergeants who protected me and then gave me leadership roles within the platoon, which allowed me to really soak in that military way of running the business and, and also, um, uh, of running a team. So I was able to have the valuable opportunities to, um, pick that up early in my uh, military career. Uh, of course, um, we go through a lot. And the thing, the thing about uh, military training is uh, they, they put all these challenges before you and they, um, they don't really give you a lot of directions. But ultimately, if you are surrounded by the right group of people, you figure out that going through as a team is the only way to success. That's the only way. And then that, so the courses are generally designed to uh, allow the candidates to kind of self-discover um, um, that 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 very incredibly important concept that ultimately de 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 determine not only mission success but survival uh, once you're out in the real world. Um, so for me, my experience was actually ultimately phenomenal. I got great um, opportunities to jumpstart my leadership. Um, skill set, which came, became very valuable down the road, uh, as I got to, uh, after I got to my team. Uh, but yeah, of course, <laughs> uh, not only was I the only doctor who ever came through infantry training uh, and special operations Green Beret training, but uh, there aren't that many people who look like me. Um, as in, I'm Korean. Of course, there are Korean Green Berets out there, you know, and they're phenomenal operators. Uh, but generally speaking, statistically, I'm not the typical background, uh, ethnically or educationally. <laughs> and so, uh, of course, like, they gave me a lot of uh, funny nicknames. Um, but, you know, I don't think I can say any of them here. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but looking back, uh, I think, I think everybody meant, meant well. So, Brian, tell us what it was like coming back from that, back to neurosurgery, back to finish your training, and then now to practice as an attending. Yeah, so it was difficult. I was very tempted to continue staying in the military and, be, and, 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 and going on the journey because, like all things in life, if you commit five or more years and you work hard and you, you have a good reputation, um, then a lot of doors open up and you actually start seeing doors that you don't even know existed. So there's a lot of opportunities that came my way as I was uh, nearing uh, nearing the end of my uh, contract uh, with with the army, but family first. So I talked to my wife. She definitely helped me um, uh, keep my promise to her and my family <laughs> uh, that I will come back to neurosurgery. And also, I realized after I got hurt that. Um, probably the best way that I can be a good citizen and serve our country and serve um, uh, 
as mo how greatest number of people would be through neurosurgery. So um, I, I know I had no issues uh, coming back after that became clear to me. Thankfully, my chairman, I, I'm ever so grateful actually to Dr. Uh, Judy Huang, who is my program director, Dr. Henry Brem, and Dr. Tim Witham. Um, they were absolutely the rock. They always reassure me uh, that I'll always have a place no matter what happens to me. And they were always looking after me and, and, and the well-being, of, not just of me, but my family, who I uh, you know, had to put, put through the same crazy process. Uh, for a few years. And so once I was ready to make that transition, they were all about welcoming me and allowing me to uh, jumpstart my residency training again. Of course, I didn't do neurosurgery. I, I haven't been in one neurosurgical procedure or <laughs> looked at Greenberg for five years. Of course, I, as a combat medic, learned veterinary medicine, dentistry, anesthesia, intubation, chest tube, um, field surgery, I was airborne uh, medical operations. I was doing all those things, but I wasn't doing neurosurgery. And so there was a lot of catch up to do. And the expectation was that I come in and, um, and spend one year as a resident uh, working potentially in a lab and doing some surgeries. And then the following year serve as a chief. <laughs> that was the expectation. And so, uh, I was I was very stressed to be honest with you. I lost a lot of weight. I was um, I was uh, still recovering from the surgeries and and uh, and I was reading neurosurgical texts all the time and and uh, you know it was a it was a long fight to be honest with you. For the first year, uh, I wasn't sure if I was gonna make it. Uh, my surgical skills, my neurosurgical knowledge have deteriorated a lot. Um, but that's where having a good mentorship and a program that really cares about you as a person, you know, it, it makes all the difference. And I was able to uh, transition as a, uh, a fellow through an enfolded fellowship. Um, and at the time, and still to this day, I'm interested in functional neurosurgery. I got to participate in uh, some very interesting DARPA-led projects when I was in the military as a, uh, as a participant. So um, I came back as a functional fellowship fellow. Uh, with Dr. Anderson. And then the next year, I became a chief. And I had the best time ever <laughs> at Hopkins. My remaining three years, I uh, got phenomenal training. And uh, I finished um, all of my training last year and uh, just celebrated my first season attending here in Orange County. Uh, the last thing I would say, though, is that learning continues and one should never quit. Um, those two things uh, was drilled into me when I was in the military, and it really worked well for me. Um, people think that being a special forces soldier is all about um, slinging guns and blowing things up. Yeah, that's that's part of it, but there's a lot of learning and education and training and uh, being um, and 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 going through challenges and failures. I failed so many so many times, got got cut so many times in the military, but I never quit, and then I persevered. So I brought that experience right back into residency, um, and it it, ser it served me well. And so I still have the same mentality now. When I, I'm in private practice, I'm, I'm I'm learning a lot of things I, I've never even like knew about uh, during training, and incorporating that into uh, in my practice. Uh, and continue to uh, offer the most conservative 
and, and most safe and effective uh, procedures and, and uh, care for, for my patients. Um, and so and I, I'm very grateful to be where I am and, and also to be able to share my story. Well, Dr. Huang, we're so grateful that you did come and share your story on our show today. Um, what an incredible story it is. Uh, we want to thank you both for ourselves and our audience uh, for your service to your country and also your continued service to your patients. Um, it is, as I said, incredible to hear someone who has walked both paths that you did in the order that you walked them. So any residents listening who are stressing about their skills deteriorating, if you're going to spend your PGY four year in a lab, uh, trust me, there's someone out there who's had it harder than you and, and he's doing fine in practice now. So uh, Dr. Huang, really inspiring to hear your, your story and and to hear your successes continuing to today and into the future. We are so grateful to have you on it. And, and a thank you and a shout out to Ricky Ditzel, who was on the show recently and put us in touch with you, who's starting medical school here at Rush in, in just a few weeks now. And we're honored to have him here. So uh, again, just what a great conversation. Dr. Brian Huang, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, thank you, Dr. Huang. And, and thank you, JP, for this opportunity. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.